Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we're fortunate to have Don Rainey join us. Don is a general partner at Grow Tech Ventures. Um, he's an experienced venture capitalist, um, lives up in the Lake Norman area, moved down here to Lake Norman area in 2013, um, GrowTech's headquarter, I believe, out of Washington, D.C., um, but Don makes his home here in the Carolinas. Wanted to catch up with Don today, or um, I guess we spoke, gosh knows, back before this whole um, coronavirus actually hit us. Um, we spoke towards the end of February, and we're going through a lot of the conversations around what he's doing up in the Lake Norman area. Um, so, as you might know, you might not know, um, Don worked with the Hurt Hub to put on an education event called Angels and Devils, the Details of Private Investing, which was a four-week course that was designed to help educate would-be or even current angel investors about what to expect from an angel investment um, and from a portfolio, building out kind of a portfolio and as you'll find, he took a really unique approach as to how he wanted to educate people in this process. Um, really, um, really well done interview with Don. Super, um, super intelligent person in the space. Knows a lot about the early stage capital world. Um, has some really cool success stories that he shares with us. And has a few things that, you know, obviously in everybody's book that didn't go the way you want them to. So, um, cool interview with Don Rainey. Um, if you see him out there in the startup community, be sure to thank him. He does a lot in this space, um, kind of in the back channels where you don't see him as often, but doesn't mean that he's not active in helping grow and nurture the system. So, anyways, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast with Don Rainey. So, Don, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great so, to be on. No, it's good to be up here at the Hurt Hub again. Yeah. Um, it's a great little, uh, great little place up here. So. Phenomenal facility. It really is. Um, before we dive in and talk about Hurt Hub, Davidson, Startup, Charlotte, et cetera, et cetera, um, I like to get started with the softball question. Um, so if you can give us just a, I know who you are, probably half of the audience knows who you are, but the other half might not. So you can give us a two to three minute, who's Don Rainey? Sure. I'm a venture capitalist. I invest in early stage companies. I've been working in VC for 20 years. Prior to that, I had four startups of my own. So startups have been my vocation and avocation for a long, long time. As an early stage venture capitalist, for those that may not understand venture capital, we go out every three, four, five years and raise a fund, a, a, a pot of committed capital. In our case, it's about 150 to $200 million. We then take the ensuing four years and invested in up to 30 startups. Um, and it, once invested, we serve on the board. We don't take majority positions, only minority. We try to help them, coach them, guide them, and, uh, and journey with them uh, to grow their companies, uh, to meet the challenges, both personal and professional, that go, that are intrinsic to that startup journey. I love the work. I have worked with uh, scores of startups through the years. 
I, um, I've been very fortunate. I've been unfortunate on occasion, <laughs> <laughs> but I've been very fortunate. Uh, my wife and kids and I moved down to uh, Lake Norman, uh, Cornelius, in 2013 out of choice. We always liked North Carolina. My wife's a weak grad. We had lived in Raleigh in the 90s. Uh, we love it here. We love the, the city. The city has been a uh, consistent uh, upside surprise, how nice it is and how it's progressing. I've made a few investments in the, in the neighborhood. Uh, did the original round in Passport in 2013. Yeah. Pazer in 2014. Uh, pet screening last summer. Okay. And um, yeah. I'm continuing to talk to startups. You know, part of the theory of the case is to go where money is not. Uh, and for us, that and for me in particular, that's the southeast. So, I investments. I have investments in Durham, Charleston, Austin, Nashville, and of course, here in Charlotte. As a firm, we we also follow that credo. We we're invested very heavily across the Upper Midwest, the Rocky Mountain West, along the East Coast. Stay out of California is really the <laughs> mantra there, uh, just because there is so much money and and yeah. so much competition. Um, and we've, uh, you know, for me, it's I came here thinking there wasn't going to be much to invest in, and it's there again another pleasant surprise. Yeah. Now Charlotte's grown up, isn't it? It's growing uh, in all the ways it can, and certainly sprawling in every direction. Exactly. Yeah. So mainly north and south. A little bit east, too. Yeah, yeah now it's moving to that way. <laughs> Um, so um, let's dig into um, what we both mentioned kind of at the beginning of the podcast, which is the Hurt Hub. Uh, we're here tonight when we finish up with this podcast. You're going to launch a four-week, the first class of four classes um, called Angels and Devils, the details of private investing, right? Right. Um, so what's behind the decision to do that here in Davidson? Well, um, one really is the facility. So uh, there's an organization called Launch LKN, which Mark McDowell and others lead. Uh, and that was really to build the sense of community uh, uh, around startups within the region. You know, for us, we've discovered time and time again, there are a lot of tech executives because of telecommuting that live in this area that commute out to work for or work from home for uh, large tech companies, but they don't know each other. And there's a wealth of knowledge and experience and money uh, in the in that group. Uh, so Launch LKN, the first thought was, hey, these people are here, but they don't know each other. And if you're going to have a startup ecosystem, you know, to the Brad Feld mantra, that you need community. Uh, you need density. You need collisions. But first, you start with community. So we're seeking to build the community of uh, Charlotte-wide, but starting here in Lake Norman, of people that have an interest in the subject matter uh, and getting them to know one, one another. This, the, the class is a, um, an interesting product. So how it came about was the folks at Launch LKM said, you know, a lot of people look at this angel investing, uh, first and foremost, is. Uh, perplexing and uh, complicated with a language all its own. So we thought we would do two things. The first was to conduct three sessions that were um, just on angel and venture capital investing terms. Make that a little less Greek for people. Yeah. Um, and we, we've done those three and they were reasonably well attended. And then the follow-on product 
was the four-week class. And the four-week class is um, maybe slightly unconventional in this way. So I thought of it, if I was going to teach somebody how to be an angel investor, um, I would want them, rather than coming into the session and saying, do this, don't do that, or uh, I'd rather tell this story uh, in, the, in the class in a different way, which is to say, I'm going to take you from the vantage point of going back in time. You've been investing for five years. Yeah. I want to show you what you did wrong, what you did right, how you were lucky, how you were unlucky, how you know you were overcome by fates on occasion, how uh, these companies, how you believed in them originally and where they stayed on the rails and went off the rails. And ultimately, also, one of the funniest aspects of this kind of investing is sometimes the most critical decisions you make are not obvious as critical decisions when you make them. Uh, there are things that are guided by what you believe in or, or uh, sticking to your principles or, or your economic theory. Um, and so uh, what I did for the class and I'm doing for the class is I took real companies that I've invested in that I know the whole story of and I'm telling them in a reverse chronological order okay. inclusive of and importantly inclusive of my own mistakes yeah. um, and along the way I want to teach people about um, the key metrics to look at and measure startups and their progression uh, how some of the players uh, that you may encounter may or may not have your best interests at heart. Uh, when you need to stand firm, how do you play defense? How do you play offense? And, and try in four one-hour sessions to equip somebody to be a competent angel investor. And the reason that's to me very important is uh, the the old joke used to be that to train a venture capitalist to take is, it's. It's the same cost as a F-16 fighter. It's you know, it takes four years and twenty million dollars to. You know, in in uh, those ex uh, those mistakes are expensive on a couple levels. One obviously just in sheer currency, but they're also uh, time and opportunity laws. So if I can help somebody get to the point where they would be after five years of doing it then they don't have to do it for five years, learn all the lessons, then do it and have some measure of success or failure and then do it successfully for five years. Yeah. So, we're, so that's the goal. How it'll work out uh, is anybody's guess. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, um, I've been working on the class and, and uh, uh, putting a lot into uh, making it a, a good story and equipping them with, immodestly, you know, the stuff I did wrong. Yeah. How do you um, how do you look back and see mistakes? Um, are they all obvious, or some of them? You know, you know the question. Well, there's you know, yes, you, you can't. They, they are really obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know the um, one of the things that I uh, I have a lot of. Uh, Credos that I share with the startup CEOs because I was a startup CEO f for a long time and now I've been working with them for 20 years is kill the monsters when they're young, right? And um, the monsters are problems that you do deal with inevitably. 
but you don't want them to get big enough to hurt you. And yeah. a lot of times you can look back and say, gosh, I wish I'd done that sooner. I think that's the, if you ask startup CEOs, what is their greatest regret? I think consistently they'll say, I, I knew the right thing or I delayed doing something I didn't want to do and it really cost me. Um, you know, time is at the essence with these things because they're always out running a wolf uh, of running out of cash. And and, uh, and so, yeah, the mistakes get magnified over time and it's really easy to point them out. Um, you know, frequently people, uh, it's... Um, debt that they shouldn't have taken on, it's uh, acquisitions they shouldn't have pursued, it's product line extensions. You know, one of the things that's really easy in a startup to do is they say we're succeeding in this space and there's this next space, contiguous space to us, and we could offer a product there and we do really well. And generally, that's misunderstood, the ease is misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, but more fundamentally, what's always misunderstood is to the degree that you have a good, a solid product succeeding and you try to add a product beside it, the main product will really suffer. There's n no way that, that that line of business will prosper in the way it had when the focus on it is diminished. Yeah. It's impossible. So, yeah, those mistakes are, are really obvious. They jump off the page. Yeah. 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 So what's so you run through a four week class? You've already kind of beta tested this to a certain extent yeah. because you did a you know a three part segment ahead of time. What's after this, um, or is it just continuing to well, all this and you know, every semester? The, the, I don't know. Uh, um, I think you know. So the I volunteered to do this. And when I did, I wasn't really sure that there would be an audience, right? It's, it's, if we built it, would they come? So we thought we'd start with the three, three different, one downtown and a, a, a couple up here, sessions on the terms. They were, signups were pretty solid. Yeah. And then we thought we'd do the four-week course. And, and I really asked myself going into it, wait, what would be the minimum number that it'd be worth doing for? Um, but the numbers have been good. I, I think there are more than 20 people signed up for this, um, uh, which is a commitment of time. Um, so if there's interest, we'll keep doing it. Maybe I don't, you know, it's really a matter of demand because um, we'll do the terms thing or we'll do this angel course. It's, it's really about uh, equipping people that have the wherewithal and the interests to, to pursue it or not pursue it. What do you send them when they're done? Um. I think you send them out in the wild. <laughs> no, um, I, you know, I hope uh, that relationships uh, spring from it. Um, you know, they may uh, go natural places uh, like the Charlotte Angel Fund. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a, a good, natural, appropriate vehicle. They may operate on their own. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to direct them, uh, but you know, hopefully they'll get involved in the community and they'll um, and they'll make some connections to like-minded individuals. Well, it goes back to hopefully that just um, it accelerates the collisions that you yeah, talk about. Yeah, right? You see each other at the coffee shop, yeah. you see whatever, and um, next thing you know, you've got a couple people coming together to support, to, to put, support a company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's cool. That's exciting. Yeah, it's uh, a very interesting. It's, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So at a um, <clears throat> at a podcast interview a couple weeks ago with Dan Arely. Do you know Dan? I know um, the name. Prof- uh, professor, best-selling author, um, really sharp guy, um, and. I asked him, so he's a professor at Duke University, sure. um, startup founder, um, investor in startups, and I asked him, how does, how, does, how does he convince people in the Durham area to take the leap into being an early stage angel investor, right? Um, and he gave me the story. He said, um, you know, what's the success rate of restaurants? And I told him it's really low, right? I mean, sure. 40, you know, 80% of all restaurants fail in the yeah, first sure. five years. He said, so would you ever tell somebody to um, to start a restaurant? And I was like, probably not. Right. Um, he's like, would you ever want to live in a city that had no restaurants in it? Um, and I was like, no, of course not. I like to go out to eat, right? I like to get away from my own kids. Yeah. Um, and so the... Um, it was, it was obvious what he's saying, right? You have to invest in startups if you want a, if you want a, a, um, a city that is growing at a fast pace and is offering new opportunities and isn't stuck in one place, kind of like Charlotte was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and I thought that was an interesting analogy. What, um, outside of people understanding that, why do you think Charlotte to date has had a lack of early stage capital? Um, Why haven't people gravitated? Why haven't the old brass gravitated to it as much as um, maybe you or I would like to have seen them to? Well, as you know, as an asset class, it has its flaws. Yeah. Um, you know, it's um, if I invest in something fresh and new tomorrow, uh, it's probably going to be seven years. Uh, before there's an outcome, five to seven years. Success or fail. Success or fail. Failures tend to occur quicker. Um, but a success, uh, reaching maturation is seven years away. I think uh, there are probably a myriad of reasons why Charlotte has coalesced. One is, you know, just that they haven't seen uh, their neighbor make a lot of money in a startup. Yeah. I mean, that there's, and I don't mean they founded. A big com- a company that inevitably is large, but you know you have a Microsoft in town or an AOL or a, you know, something, and and people make good money, uh, and they've seen this full this value creation cycle. So I one is I think there's it's not so much ignorance about that the asset class exists, or maybe they don't have the money, or they don't have the work, but they haven't seen it. I mean, they, they it's see. Not, it's not part of cocktail conversation. Yeah, it really does need to be part of cocktail conversation for uh, maybe not the right, but but it has to be something that's part of their experience that they, this kind of investing produces outsized returns. That's and they have, that hasn't been here historically. That's why getting one going is brutal. But once it's going, it kind of self-perpetuates. I mean, our assumption would be if you have a successful startup, it'll spawn three to five successful startups. And the, the reason it, it inevitably does so is people learn, dare I say, the dark arts of bringing something out of the ground. And having seen others do it, they want to do it themselves. And that first startup that spawns those three to five creates wealth that will support them and creates those cocktail conversations. So, you know, I think the the good news for Charlotte is the first generation is here. Yeah. Um, that wasn't true five years ago. It's here now. And so going forward, 
you know, they'll beget more startups to use a biblical kind of thing. Yeah. yeah you know, Abe begets Sarah. Yeah. But, uh, Every you know, Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh, so uh, that's a really good thing. And, and uh, I think it's really that people can get comfortable and, and it's got to be dinner table. Um, I have been doing this a long time. I, my wife is, in, is trained as an attorney. I come home with things that I like. I tell her, hey, you know, this it does, this idea, whatever. And she says, invariably, that'll never work. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we are, yeah. and sometimes she's right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and, uh, so part of it is just that the, the, over the dinner table, people have seen it, heard about it. And I think the capital is clearly present, yeah. right? Um, and as there are more... Uh, people knowledgeable about how to do it and that there are more public successes, I think you'll see it. It'll happen. Yeah. So um, for somebody that's been around the VC space for 20 years, um, where do you see Charlotte in the the next three to five years from a startup and capital perspective? Well, you know, the... The intriguing thing about Charlotte, first and foremost, is the fintech angle. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more in scaling a startup from ten to two hundred. The the critical personnel are often the director level, senior director, director, senior manager people that understand how to make this thing work, um, and that's really where. Charlotte and fintech can excel because um, I think there'll be fintech startups and I think that the layers of management to enable them to break out are present and that's the critical component you know you can't in city after city there's just things in DC where I was for many years there's no consumer marketing capability um, and and so um People have never marketed to consumers, yeah. and um, and so to start that a company that has that dependency in that market is tough. So that's the that's the path of least resistance uh, for there will be I think formidable fintech companies here. Um, healthcare um, movement have a chance. Well. You know, you think of healthcare. You, I mean, Nashville is yeah. is really um, such a force. I mean, and secondarily, Boston. Um, I don't know without a medical school in market that healthcare will be what it is in the Research Triangle Park or yeah. what it is in Nashville. So it'll be interesting to see if Wake Forest and HRM bring their four-year university here, what it does for the community, right? It would do, yeah. you know, a, a medical school is good in large part because they're not just typically training MDs. They're going to be training MD, PhDs. And yeah. those are the people that go and invent stuff and, you know, create companies. Uh, yeah. So it's not just some MDs invent stuff, to be fair, but, you know, the MD, PhD is the, the group that really, from which most inventions come. Yeah. You, um, so you, um, when did you start your first company? Uh, well, I started one right out of college, but <laughs> um, it didn't work. It did not work. That's okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so it was a great education. What was it? I started a business to sell uh, at the time. Um, 
uh, they were uh, so well. Further, I was in college and I had a business repairing uh, pinball machines, but I don't count that one. <laughs> but at the time, uh, repairing pinball hard to machines. hard to scale. Yeah. Well, yeah. the funny thing was, uh, dating myself, of course. Uh, I was repairing them in the age when they went from electromechanical to circuit board okay. based. And when I saw those circuit boards replacing the, the old electromechanical stuff, I thought I got to go into computers. I mean, yeah. these, this looks like the future. So I started a business selling, uh, at the time, it's hard to imagine now, but at the time, car dealers did not have a serious uh, finance function. Um, they had a customer who wanted a loan, they called the bank. Yeah. Uh, and over time, they became the front end of that lending process, so they needed credit terminals. So I sold the original, uh, I would car dealer to car dealer selling a terminal that they could pull credit reports on. Huh. Um, and the car dealers used to beat me up for practice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're good at that. Yeah, yeah. that's very kind of them. Uh, but it, uh, you know, it definitely honed my selling skills in yeah. a couple of years. I was involved in software companies, um, so I was. Um, uh, I had I worked I was uh, led a software company in Raleigh called DaVinci Systems. This was one of the first email products. Yeah. Uh, raised venture capital for it, and, and uh, that was quite an experience. Um, what you, what did you think of venture caps um, at that point in your career when you were raising money for it? Well, originally I thought they were pretty stupid, <laughs> and um, I held that belief for a long time. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I went into venture capital in part when I was invited into it because I thought this is going to be great. Yeah. You know, I'll compete with all these yo-yos. <laughs> Although. I, I would share one story, and it, and, it, and it has guided me since I was raising company money in Silicon Valley on Sand Hill Road, the yeah, yeah. mecca of venture capital. And I went in to see Ann Winblad, who's actually still in the business. And, mm-hmm. and I had a pitch deck and a, a, a pretty good case of nerves. And uh, I was going to tell her about th- th- this company, uh, and she said... Um, don't tell, don't show me your slide deck. Don't uh, take me through the pitch. Don't show me any final proje- financial projections. Tell me four things you believe about the future. Four assumptions you make about the future of what's going to happen, and if I agree with them, I'll invest. Okay. So. I crafted the right answer on the plane ride home. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was not delivered in the moment. Um, so uh, the, the assumptions were and are, one, we assume that there will be a market for electronic email. Two, we assume that we'll be able to build a competitive product for that market. Three, having done the first two, we will organize and execute a successful sales and marketing effort to sell that email. And four, having done those three things, we will have created a company with real value. That's what I should have said. She didn't invest. Others did. But the lesson learned was really, and it's part of the lens that I've had since then is, and I tell entrepreneurs, if you're pitching, if they don't agree with your fundamental assumptions, the first being there will be a market for, they'll never invest. Yeah. 
Uh, if they don't believe you can build a competitive product, if they don't believe in the market, they believe in the market. They have to believe you'll build a competitive product for it. They have to then again believe that you can build a company that will market and sell it and support it and that that company will be valuable. And so I always say, you know, VCs are famous uh, or infamous for not giving good yes or no answers. But for the entrepreneur who's in that struggle, and if you're going to often, it's not unusual to pitch 20 or 30 VCs in a process and get 20 or 30 disparate opinions as to what you're doing or what you should do, is find people that believe in your assumptions. Find people that believe there will be a market for what you do. Um, and, and so, yes, so it's... it's um, you know, like anything, it's an industry that is, you know, is defined by some of its bad actors and less so by some of its good actors. Do you, um, uh, do you have a, a, um, a process like Ann did where you tell people to put away their pitch deck? Can you, you give them something or not? No, I no, don't. No. Uh, you, you know, you I mean, a signature uh, calling. Well, you know, yeah. one of the things that, that, that I'm always trying to determine is this a good story being poorly told or a poor story being well told. Yeah. If you look at the data, there's a professor out of Chicago who analyzed the, the whole life cycle of venture capital investments and, and with an eye to unseen, I'm sorry, I forget his name. You're fine. I um, do that all the time. Yeah, but so he said, you know, good, poor stories well told tended to be the biggest mistakes that BCs make. And so to some degree, you know, you're often dealing with people who, for whom English may be a second language, and you really are trying to get to what is the story here uh, and what is the quality of the storytelling. So um, I really make a point of, um, of listening as actively as I can to the storytelling so that I can ascertain how the storytelling cor- correlates to the story to the actual thing that they're trying to tell me. Um, because there's a, there's a lot of noise. You know, they, yeah. they get advice from a lot of sources, put this in, leave that out, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, and it's hard to, it's hard to do. Yeah. Um, they're constantly tweaking. Uh, to your point, they're doing 20, 30, 40, 50 pitches. Um, somebody tells them X, they take it out, and the next person wanted to see it. They put yeah, it yeah, 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 and that's, um, that's not uncommon. Yeah. I, you know, the, 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 they get a lot of uh, noise. And, uh, and you know, I, I just tell them, put that, whatever somebody tells you to put out, put in the appendix because, yeah. you know. You might need you it. You might need yeah. it. You need an ace in the hole, <laughs> right? Have a, I always say put a big appendix in there because, yeah. you know, you look really prepared if they say, what about this and those? Yeah. And you say, hey, oh, it's in the appendix. The exhibit C. Wait, yeah, there. Right, I'll right, get right, there right, in just there. a second. Take a look. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's the best company or best story, if you will, that you've ever invested in? Well, you know, my biggest financial success is probably my best story. Okay. And that was Living Social. Um, mm-hmm. And um, when did you um, when did you make the investment? Summer of 2008. Okay. Um, it's a great time to deploy capital. It was. Yeah. It was. Well, this was an interesting story. So there, the four guys that founded uh, Living Social were... Um, uh, very talented in, in different ways, a CEO, a CTO, a, a superb marketer, and a great product guy. And um, 
we had, and I had been fascinated from on the rise of Facebook in 2004 and five, uh, that uh, social media was going to be a big thing and that social media would eventually become social commerce. And when I met um, the Living Social guys, they were above an antique store in Georgetown in an apartment that they were using as a business place. They were out of D.C.? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and they, uh, they, 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 it was clearly with these four guys all single, and it was nobody's job, apparently, to clean the bathroom or the kitchen. But um, the, uh, they knew more about the social media ecosystem that was emerging than anybody I'd ever met. Their original name was Hungry Machine. Their original product was a social media-based sharing of uh, light interests. So uh, was a, there was a book component. They were doing, at the time, more book reviews than... Um, Amazon was on a daily basis, and there were beers, and there were other things that were they were interested in. And um, we bought a company uh, in 2009 called BuyYourFriendADrink.com. And BuyYourFriendADrink was online to offline commerce. Okay. And so we thought the opportunity in social media was to influence people to, to buy something Online or offline, but we thought the offline component was big. And buy your friend a drink was, you have a friend that you want to send a, a beverage to. Yeah. And the you know the most of the people that distribute beer at the time, this is before the craft resolution revolution. If your first drink is a Heineken, you will probably drink Heineken that night. So, they. The Heineken distributors would pay for that first beer. Yeah. So we could take money for the beer and yeah. and 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 uh, provide for free. Uh, but that evolved into uh, this coupon company, which was um, it was a stored value. Uh, it, it, so our thesis was: you, if you're a small restaurant tour. You pay three thousand dollars for the uh, for the yellow pages at the time, or other advertising, and you don't know what your return is going to be. There's, it's very uncertain. We would go in and say, "You give us three thousand dollars, and we will give you a specific number of customers." Now they'll come in, and the restaurant, the cost of goods is one third the the um, the bill. So you'll sell it for fifty cents on a dollar, and they'll fulfill the coupon. You're going to be profitable. At a lower margin, yeah. but if they buy drinks or other food, you're going to do fine. So, uh, eventually, you know, five thousand employees um, and raised a billion dollars in capital, and if in uh, you know we returned a couple hundred million dollars on our investment, and um, it was really a, a, a tremendous experience. Time period. So you make investment in summer of 2008. Your exit came in... 2011. 2011. So yeah. quick three-year turnaround. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you sit on the board for that? Yeah. Oh, you yeah. did? I sat on through uh, 15. Did you? Yeah. Um, what did you learn on the board of that? That was a great experience. Because that had to be your fastest-growing company. It was right? fastest-growing company, yeah. and, and um, you know, we we had to do things. We did some, you know, we had to scale up into 150 U.S. cities 
uh, in a matter of months. And um, one of the things we did was we hired salespeople in every city, but we didn't hire any managers. And uh, it's like opening a zoo without cages, yeah. you know. It was, it was, <laughs> the pandemonium was complete. <laughs> the, uh, but we eventually put in managers. But um, what was really interesting was uh, I, I met some very uh, sharp people. I learned a lot about how do you grow quickly uh, and really um, how important culture is um, because at a certain point, um, you can't manage it of, of really rapid growth. Culture triumphs management because the only way we could get any semblance of law and order and doing the right thing and taking care of the customer was having a culture where everybody absent direction and, and we didn't have enough management yeah they they behaved on the culture which is you know be, take care of people be good to people be good to one another um but and it, it was also you know exposure to uh people that write very large checks um uh and how they think um and um it was a great experience yeah um Let's go the opposite direction then. Most disappointing story. Yeah, so, uh, and it was profoundly disappointing. So, company, uh, which... You don't have to name names. I'm not going to name yeah. names, yeah. Um, brilliant, visionary founder. Um, a great idea. Uh, so, the idea was that... The, this is 2010. The idea is that you will, all of us will, need on a consistent basis a system with which we manage our personal information or information that we want to share periodically or with a smaller group. So you would say, all my, I have a, let's say I have a beach house and the codes are this, yeah. and I'm going to share that you know, file that's available to these family members. And so if I change the codes, they can they can go there and only they can go there. And so that is, you know, small things like social security numbers and it's big things where organization could take what is typically um, the, the cultural knowledge. Here are the five best places for the staff that works here to go to lunch. Here's how to involve. Here's people, the existing teams' tips for how to manage the Jira system, or yeah. you know. And so it was a policy-based, a provisioned sharing of information where people could share their their information and their intents. The commerce side of it was. People could declare that they were in the market, say, for a minivan. And then they, now right now, Toyota, Honda, they're going to spend $300, $400 per person that walks in a dealership this Saturday to buy a minivan, to get them to their dealer or to get them to their brand. And so our thought was, what if we said to people, you know what? If you declare you're in the market for a Honda minivan, we'll monetize it and give you three quarters of the money. Yeah. So Honda's happy because they're going to 
get a sure prospect, and the consumer's happy because they're going to get three hundred dollars. Yeah, it's a great idea. Just didn't. Never. I don't think we ever made a dollar of revenue. Yeah. Just traction, just hard. No traction. It was hard. Um, the 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 com- the. The good news and bad news with a great visionary is they can dream up something that the world wants. Yeah. Bad news is they have no idea how to build it. Yeah. And it turned out with that one, no one else did either. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, um, but great story, great monetization aspect of it. Yeah. Um, Do you take anything away from that other than sometimes you swing and miss, Don? Is Is that kind of your takeaway from that one? Well... Well, I have many takeaways on many levels, but, you know, um, my, I would say categorically, the things that failed for me are ideas that I fell in love with. Um, You know, the the thing is, you can't look at them and say, could this succeed? It's in a large, you know, in a universe that we live in, Everything can succeed or yeah. could succeed. It's what will succeed. And what do, will succeed is based on, more often than not, the ability of the people to make something out of nothing, to make, to create something. So um, leading with the idea has hurt me consistently. Leading with the perfection or the execution has always helped me. Even if it's a bad idea, well executed. It's going to go farther than a good idea unexecuted yeah uh, somebody once put a sheet of paper in front of me um, said this is the universe of good ideas yeah um, and they drew a small corner um, or drew boxed in a small corner and said this is a um, um, this is that universe narrowed down to actual businesses that can make it yeah um, and then they put a small little dot in that corner and said this is the ones that are scalable um, I thought that was kind of an interesting way to look yeah, at it. Yeah, without knowing the, the sizes of those things, <laughs> <laughs> except the dot. <laughs> the, I, I yeah. think it's, there's a broader yeah. set of opportunities, yeah. about, but the, the, the point is well taken. Yeah. The, the, um, it is hard to do. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to build something. It's really not that it's unique. It's just that, it, it, um, that you figure out how to get it into more people's hands and they are satisfied or like it. I had an opportunity, um, you know, YouTube, another startup I was involved in, which was a failure and a great idea, was in the late 90s, um, a startup that was premised on the idea that people would would film wacky, fun videos that they'd want to put on a central site to show friends and, and strangers that they would enjoy viewing these videos. What a horrible idea. Yeah. And, um, and it, it failed, and it, you know, it's like all failures, they all sting longer than they probably should. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, in 2005, I had the opportunity to meet the founders of YouTube, and, uh, of course, I had some questions, right, yeah. because I How wanted to know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And, and um, their answer, which was a great answer, was we enabled video embedding. Uh, there were. I said, how many start? Well, go. How many startups? When you started YouTube, how many people were in that business doing exactly what you were trying to do? The answer was thirty. Okay. So I said, okay, thirty. How'd you just differentiate? He said, we enable people to embed 
our videos are the videos that we had captured on their site. And they became a massive viral distribution network. Yeah. They watched their YouTube video and encountered it randomly on the web. Then they went to YouTube. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, their issue was to, to, to follow the user's path or put themselves on the user's path, make it easier for the u- user. Uh, and more accessible uh, for distribution, and, and that did it. And a lot of times, that's the the kind of seminal moment. Like, yeah. can you can you figure out not by being overly clever, but by putting yourself in the shoes of the of the uh, of the consumer? I t- now tell you another sidebar, just because uh, it was a great lesson in that. So, after 9/11, uh, then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld formed a board of 12 venture capitalists to um, to enable the U.S. military to bring inventions onto the battlefield faster than their traditional contracting process, which is, you know, Gordon, go to Northrop Grumman or Boeing or something and say, build me one of these. Yeah. And so um, I served on the board for six years, and so they would present to us a problem. And... Uh, and uh, what they wanted as a resolution. Yeah. So one of the problems we were asked to solve was you're uh, a brave man or woman in the U.S. Marine Corps. You're standing in a dusty square in Fallujah. It's 115 degrees. There's dust and camel dung in the air and diesel fumes. And you're in a square. There's 200, 300 people milling about because they implemented an entry system into Fallujah. You had to wait yep. for security. Your job is to give that Marine a tool that will enable... There's a suicide bomber in those 300 people. You have to give them a tool that will identify the suicide bomber in 90 seconds. Uh, and it ideally should weigh a pound or less, maybe a pound and a half, if it, it's a, a physical device. So we solved that. And it was to put ourselves in the shoes of the bomber, because the bomber... Is about to, to die. Yeah. The bomber has a very elevated heart rate because they're about to die. Yeah. So we got them a identified advice that could take heart rate from somebody's eyeball at 300 yards. It's so they could scan the crowd. That gentleman over there in the red hat is at a heart rate of 155, and he's just standing there. Yeah. Step away from them. So. In this case, it was the. I'm using the analogy a little roughly, yeah. but you put yourself in the shoes of the consumer, uh, and in that case, uh, you know, it was nice. I mean, I think we probably saved a fair number of lives. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and uh, there were a lot of fun assignments in that state, yeah. right? <laughs> the, the, uh, the, we had a lot of fun with, and we went into the NSA, you know, the super secretive, and yeah. they were describing something they wanted, and we were not. We didn't have top security or top secret clearances or anything, so they couldn't tell us where they're going to use the stuff or how. They would just say, "We want something that does this." And I'm like, what do you know? If you had one of those, you could tap a an, a, 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 an oceanic fiber optic cable. Did yeah. you know that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they just just stare at us. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's funny. So how do you? Um, so I mean, I guess that's. That's the easiest thing to teach those people that are coming through the class tonight, is um, is to step into the shoes of, of the 
of, um, of the consumer, right? Well, if you're going to angel, angel invest, you, you, you advise the CEO to do that. Yeah. What you're really trying to do is help the CEO progress. But you've got so you've got twenty plus years of doing this yeah. plus your own. Um, so how do you um, um, you do it by starting five years back and you tell people yeah. successes and failures, right? Yeah. Um, and then regardless of that, despite the fact that you've been doing it for twenty plus years, you still have successes and failures. Sure. And you recognize the fact that these folks that come tonight are going to learn a boatload over the course of the next four weeks, and they're going to have success and failure stories that they're going to share with you next time they see you at the coffee shop. Yeah, they may blame me for something. Yeah. <laughs> right? You left out. Here's what you left out. Fair enough. There's yeah. a reputation <laughs> risk here, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's always risk. There's always risk. Um. So, um, so no, I mean, I, um, I'm always interested in trying to shortcut stuff. And yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, what, what you know and what I've learned over the course of the last couple of years is you can't shortcut stuff because things happen. Um, you can't foresee certain things. Um, economy shifts on you. This happens, sure, sure. et cetera, et cetera. And you just have to, um, back to kind of your very first point, trust your own values and how you're going to approach things and play that game. And over time, if you have a sense of what you're doing, the numbers will start to roll in your favor. Yeah, but you also have to accept that you are a small ship in a big ocean. Yeah. And we call it OBE, being overcome by events. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, like the financial crisis uh, of 2008, uh, you can be overcome by events where things much larger than yourself. Um, You can uh, do the right thing and fail. Yeah. I mean, that's part of... Uh, the startup experience is you can absolutely have done the right things in the right order in the right way and still fail. Um, and you have you, you you know you do have to dust yourself off after you've done everything right and you've been um, un- unlucky and and luck is um, you know luck is a very is the hardest thing in life I think to quantify in the following way which is if I got in a car accident on the way over here to see you, I could say, oh, it's l- unlucky. could also say, it could be that that, that fender bender kept me from getting killed yeah. in an accident that would have occurred. <clears throat> so whether you're lucky or unlucky at the end of the day, it really takes years to determine. Yeah. Um, and um, so... I just think that you don't know if you're being lucky or unlucky in a moment. And I think as a startup and entrepreneur, you have to accept that there are externalities that may drive the out, the outcome, and you may have done everything right. Uh, what a tough world to live, right? Well, yeah. It's a, it's a tough truth, yeah. right? It is. So... Um, so we're coming up. So we've got um, I don't know, five, ten minutes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, kind, of, kind of running up. Um, circle back around to Charlotte. Yeah. Um, what's um, what's Charlotte doing? Um, so it's kind of stay on the same theme, right? What's Charlotte doing right? Well, um, I think that there is um, there is a more co- coherent community. Uh, there are more players supporting the idea of a startup ecosystem. Um, a lot of the underpinnings are present uh, in terms of people that are interested in the subject matter. There's, you know, 
their various small conferences and stuff, and that is all to the good. I, I think what I'd like to see, which unfortunately we don't have in any mature ecosystem, there are professional services firms that enter for the good of the community, and that is not really evident here. Define professional service firms. Lawyers. Uh, you know, a, law, a, a lawyer that understands this stuff that can advise clients in low cost with the hope of them growing into bigger clients. Accounting firms, uh, bankers, HR firms, various, um, in any mature ecosystem, there are participants. They're in it somewhat altruistically, but largely as well, yeah. which is fine. Yeah, right? which is good. Yeah. It'll only perpetuate it. People yeah. can make money doing it. But that's the one thing that um, that would really convince me we've, that it's turned the corner. Um, you know, there's there are great lawyers who work Charlotte, John Yates of Morris Manning Martin in, in Atlanta, and um, it's the second or third time I've na- heard his name in two weeks. So he's obviously doing great things in Charlotte. Yeah, he's he, well, he's from here. He yeah. went to South Mac, and he's yeah, he's from here, uh, and he has uh, family here. His mom's still here, and. He's a great, you know, he is the, of, of venture lawyers or startup lawyers in Atlanta, he's the, the preeminent guy, um, with no disrespect to Doug Spear or others that are in the market. Yeah. Um, the, but that kind of thing makes a big difference because for people like me in a startup market like this, the one thing I have to go look at is, uh, have they had competent legal work? And mostly not. Yeah. Uh, have they had competent an accountant? That's uh, you know no. Um, you know are 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 the under are there is their structure right and and so that's really what the ecosystem needs. And those people, well, they're not withholding their favor. They need to see an opportunity. I mean, at some point, there are enough startups that the accounting firms say, hey, you know, we ought to as they do in other markets, dedicate somebody in emerging companies and they ought to go see all the startups in town and do, and what they typically do is a cheap audit. You know, they do an audit that would, an investor would require at a discounted price the first year and it rises and three years they're making their normal rate and they're happy and they've acquired a new customer. Yeah. So that makes a ton of sense. I'd never looked at it from that perspective before, but you're right. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, I ran into a startup here and talked to the founder, and he had written his own accounting system. Okay. Uh, most likely not a 10-year CPA doing audit work. Uh, he had never worked as an accountant in his life. Yeah. yeah. He was a very good computer scientist, and he thought it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, no. So I'm so, sure it worked in the way that he thought it should work. Yes, it, but it wasn't GAP. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't generally accepted accounting principle based. Yeah. It was, you know. So um, let's take your approach with your class. Yeah. Um, in three years, you come back and you decide to do this again. Um, what allows it to have 50 people in it instead of 20? Um, well, it, you know, it, it's a two-sided marketplace. And any two-sided marketplace is, is hard to build because you're always running to one side of the boat or the other. The two sides are the startups and, and, and the investors. You have to build both sides. Uh, and uh, hopefully, 
uh, I'll continue to help build the one side, the investors. Investor side, yeah. Yeah. And the community writ large will build the other side. Um, and I'll do my own chip in on the uh, company side, but I'm better equipped and immediately positioned to help on the investor side. So that's hopefully the flywheel is more companies, more investors, more investors, more companies, back and forth and up. And, and you know, two-sided marketplaces are the hardest thing to develop. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right about that. You're essentially, um, it's kind of like a startup creating a market. Yeah. Um, right? And it's the yeah. hardest thing for a startup to do is to create a market, um, not tap into an existing one in a different way, but actually create demand that hasn't been there before. Um, and you're kind of trying to create demand that's never been there before. Um, because Charlotte's been perfectly content, as we were talking about before, um, plowing their money into real estate and clipping their returns that way. Yeah. And in... And, and uh, this is maybe just a small part of that estate you yeah. know, that, that exists that they could see that this is good and valuable. Yeah. I think there are a fair number of people that are predisposed to make these investments, and that's why they're in these classes. Yeah. Uh, because they just, nobody wants, nobody likes being the newbie, yeah. and nobody uh, wants to make unnecessary mistakes. We'll all make mistakes, yeah. but. Stupid ones or ones that are easily avoided. If you can clip them, you'll do a lot better in the end. Um, I liken it to the fact that um, I have a friend of mine that I met six years ago um, that ran a CrossFit gym. Right. Um, and I was at my heaviest weight I'd ever been, and I was trying to get down, and I was doing it on my own. I wasn't making any progress. And Josh said, come to my CrossFit gym, sure. and I'll get you into shape. Um, and because Josh, and I knew Josh, yeah. and I had that personal relationship, because he pulled me in, I walked into that door, even though I was scared to death yeah, what sure, was on the other sure. side of it, right? I didn't know. Yeah, I, no, agreed. And I had yeah. to lift a weight. I didn't, yeah. I didn't have to do any of the stuff yeah. in there that they're doing. And it's pretty much the similar right here, right? You almost need somebody to kind of grab you by the hand and say, here's the language, because otherwise they're scared to death because they don't understand it. They've never seen it. It's different. But I think you're right. I mean, between small business owners, um, technology execs, um, and just a younger population, I think there's a predisposition to invest in it. Um, it's just a matter of flipping the switch, grabbing their hand, and pulling them in the door, right? Yeah, and, and the, the, the other side of that, too, frankly, is... There's a much better psychic reward in this kind of thing where um, you are creating something that gives people jobs. Yeah. If you really succeed, you are giving them wealth. Um, and real estate invest and I do real estate investing, so yeah. I, I say, say this with that awareness. It's like watching grass grow. So yeah. It's making money. It's dull. Yeah. You don't um, change or improve anybody's lives. And I think that um, most people would like to make some money, and they would like to bring people up. Yeah. Uh, and this, that's the, the, the bo double bottom line. I'm misusing it. But yeah. there is a double bottom line that you can, you know, if one of these succeeds, I think a lot of people will share in avid success and passport success and Trasada's success. Um, and their lives will be improved and their community will be improved. I mean, ideally, these people make some wealth in a stock option and they give it 
to the church and support their schools, and they, you know, they put the money in the community. Yeah. Not all that money goes into a fidelity account. A lot of it goes in, into the community, and their lives are enriched, and the people that enabled them to do that have, have been, by extension, yeah. their lives enriched. It's the Dana Rayleigh argument, right? Which yeah. is you, you invest in it because you won't... Yeah, that, but you, yeah, right. But, and you made money, yeah. and you were part of something, yeah. and you... Uh, and you got to pay it forward a little bit. Yeah. When you do real estate, and and not to run it down, I mean, you're just, it's for you. Yeah. So, no, I agree. So, well, this has been cool, um, Don. I mean, we're up on our um, Thanks our for having minutes, me. And I've enjoyed the conversation. I love the stories. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to sit next door for an hour now and yeah. hear some more stories. Well, I'll try to keep it interesting. Yeah. No, I don't know. I, think, um, I don't think you're going to have to try very hard. So, um, thanks for doing the classes. Right, thank you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Um, and look forward to seeing you around town some more. Yeah. Investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.